Well, good morning, church family. I want to just thank you all so much, Sarah and I do, for just your prayers and your texts and your cards uh, and your emails just concerning uh, my father's passing. Um, he died on November the 22nd. I was able to get out to uh, be with him on the 20th uh, along with my brothers, and so we just had some sweet, memorable times uh, around his bedside. Uh, the last couple of days of his life. He was unconscious by the time um, I got out there, but uh, we were just able to uh, spend time together and time with him. And, and just the way scheduling worked out, uh, we did not have his service until last Monday. So, um, uh, so I, it was a matter of going out and coming back and then going back out. And then we, had, we drove out there a week ago Saturday and then had some uh, family time Sunday, and then on Monday, uh, last Monday we had the service uh, at 1230, and then about 3 o'clock we uh, got on the road and drove back and got to Tulsa just after midnight, uh, early Tuesday morning. So uh, we've done quite a bit of traveling in the last couple of weeks, but I thought uh, you'd be interested in a couple of pictures of my family. Uh, so that's the Bolting House clan there, uh, dad and mom, dad in his healthier days, and uh, Robbie, Randy, Ricky, so my older brother, and I'm in the middle, and there's my younger brother. Um, and then here in this next picture is a picture of uh, my dad's family. So my dad's in the middle. Uh, he uh, had two brothers, two sisters. Uh, my grandmother had passed away in, like in the 1950s, so I never met her. She's not in the picture. That's, that's my grandpa. That's Grandpa Boltinghouse. And uh, so he was born in 1886, and he died actually on the same date that my father died. They both died on a November 22nd. That was kind of interesting. Um, but uh, his name, far left, Grandpa Boltinghouse, his name was Byron. And uh, so here's the next picture that I saw for the first time last week, which just absolutely fascinates me. Uh, so my grandpa... When he was, I don't know, 12 or 13, he's a young man in the middle, had his picture taken with, with his family. And I don't know for sure if he's 12 or 13. He just kind of looks that old uh, to me in that, in that shot. Uh, but he, uh, had, he was one of uh, six. He had five sisters. So what was that dynamic like? And uh, uh, to the far right is... His father, so that to the far right's my great-grandfather, okay? And then to the far left is my great-great-grandfather. And that's really all I know. And so I have so many questions, um, especially my great-great-grandfather, because he looks awfully young in that picture, doesn't he? And so, but I'm trying to do the math because if my grand, if Grandpa Boltinghouse, if my grandpa uh, was, you know, 12 or 13, if he's born in 1886, so that couldn't have been taken any later than 1900. Uh, and so uh, how old was great-great-grandpa Boltinghouse? I don't know, 1840, 1850, and I, I, don't, I don't know, I don't know. But that's my family. There's a link there somewhere. And, and I got some questions answered, but now I'm even more curious. Uh, so, anyway. Our scripture reading this morning 
in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11, are a picture, a picture. And we're linked to that picture. And what I would like to do this morning, now that we've heard it, Terrence uh, read in, in the language of his homeland and then uh, read it in English. We heard that individually. I'd like for us to uh, recite that as a church family. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. So I have it here on the screen. Let's read it together. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Larry Hurtado, Larry Hurtado, H-U-R-T-A-D-O, Larry Hurtado is a New Testament scholar, and he specializes in early Christian origins. Uh, what did the early Christians believe and teach and sing about Jesus? And it's a very important question to ask because... There is a misunderstanding in our world today about who Jesus is and what Christians have taught about him. I call this misunderstanding Da Vinci Code theology. Da Vinci Code theology, based on the movie by Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code. And Da Vinci Code theology goes something like this. Jesus, this peasant rabbi, human, was so effective. I mean, he was a miracle worker. But uh, he died, and he didn't really bodily resurrect, but his teaching resurrects and lives on. And stories about him and, quote, oral tradition led to this Christ figure, which took decades and decades and decades. Jesus, this peasant rabbi human, over here decades later, Jesus, this Christ figure. Jesus, the man to the Christ. Da Vinci Code theology. Larry Hurtado's scholarship soundly refutes Da Vinci Code theology. And he does so by means of what we just read here, in these verses, these verses, according to the best scholarship, tell us that this was an early Christian hymn, a hymn that was recited, sung, spoken as a part of Christian worship when the believers gathered in small spaces or large spaces. 
very early on. In fact, Hurtado can show that the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians, either Paul personally penned verses 5 through 11, or he incorporated this hymn, which was in existence older than even the letter to the Philippians. And so here you have this very early, early word about who Jesus is. This early Christian hymn. And so what we just recited here and what we just heard connects us to the past. Connects us to our history as a church family. What I want to do this morning is I want to talk about the picture that these verses paint. And then I want to talk about the purpose of the picture. These verses are the go-to text if you're wanting to find out what Christianity is about. If you're wanting to explore the essence of who Jesus is and why we gather, these are your go-to verses. I want to see what that picture is. And then I want us to explore why it's important, the point, the reason why this is in this letter to be recited then and now, the picture and the point of the picture. And how we need this. Do you want better relationships in 2018? Let's not wait till 2018. Do you want a better relationships this Christmas? Let's not even wait till then. Do you want better relationships right now? By the time we leave, these verses hold the answer to that question. Our relationships can improve, be they family, friendships. This, um, this, this necessary and timely publicizing of these awful sexual harassment stories. These verses speak to what can heal that. And the way to prevent that. In other words, what I'm saying is that God's word has the answer. If we'll just look to his word. That's what makes this so important here today. So let's consider the picture. And then the point of the picture. First the picture. These verses tell about a king who became a slave... These, 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 these verses tell the story, the true story, of how Christmas began not in Bethlehem, but in heaven. Heavenly throne, earthly cross, heavenly throne. The king who descended only to reascend. Verses 5 and 6, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, look at that phrase, form of God, verse 6. What does that mean? It means that Jesus was already at the top of the ladder. 
It means that Jesus was already in the corner office. That Jesus was already on the supreme throne in heaven. That Jesus was rich beyond splendor. That he possessed the majesty of deity. That he performed all of its functions. He enjoyed all of its perks and prerogatives. He was adored by his father. He was worshipped by the angels. If you want a passage of scripture that will just unpack the meaning of this short phrase, form of God, you need only look to Revelation chapters 4 and 5 where the Apostle John gives us a magnificent, splendid, glorious picture of the throne room in heaven where angels whose sole existence is to surround that throne and to cry out, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That's the sole purpose of their existence, day and night. They never cease to say, even while I'm preaching now, in the throne room of heaven, creatures are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then there are other uh, beings, thrones, leaders who are bowing down saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And then there are still other creatures in chapter 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And, and then still others are crying out, worthy is the lamb and still others they're all to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. This is continually going on. It's happening right now, even in our service in the throne room of heaven. And if, if you may be wondering in your mind, well, you know, doesn't that sound arrogant for God to, you know, be, be having all, all of that glory and praise and honor? And, and, and I can understand why you might think that. Let me just, what, but what if he deserves it? You got paid Friday, some of you did. You cashed the check, didn't you? How arrogant of you to do that. Wait a minute, I earned that. You just made my point. See, you just made my point. See, God deserves this. He's earned this. And, and he's made us in such a way huh, that there is something in your heart right now that you put in the center of your life. And there's something in your heart right now that you're crying out, holy, 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 and worthy, worthy, worthy. Do you know that? That may be a something or it may be a someone. And that in and of itself is not wrong because God has wired us to be worshipers. We're wired for worship. The question is, is what you're worshiping worthy of your worship? Is the who of your worship holy? See, Scripture says in no uncertain terms in Colossians 1 that by him all things were created. That's Jesus. By Jesus all things were created, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he is worthy of our worship. And before time began, 
the son was invulnerable to pain and embarrassment and frustration. He lived in unclouded serenity. He, his supremacy was total. His satisfaction was complete. His blessedness was perfect. And he had secured none of these rights by any effort whatsoever. It was simply the way things were and the way they had always been and the way they would forever be. There was no reason for there to be any change whatsoever. But there was a change, wasn't there? Our spiritual ancestors, Adam and Eve, created to be image bearers, created to mediate the presence and and, and glory of God, God said, my glory is mine. You may not have my glory. You can mediate my presence. You can mediate my glory. You can mediate my love as image bearers, as you uh, benevolently rule this earth, but you cannot have my glory. And Adam and Eve, incited by the evil one, baited by him, baited by those words, you shall be like God. They made a glory grab. And our world has been broken ever since. They lurched to grab what was not theirs for their own selfishness. And the result was a fractured, fallen, sinful world. And why did they do that? Paul tells us why in these verses. Look back up at verse 3. There are some words that explain why. Verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. There it is. That's why they did that. Paul uses two words to describe why what happened in Eden happened. Selfish ambition and conceit. Let's look at conceit. First, conceit. The New Testament comes to us by way of the Greek language, and the word conceit in the Greek language is actually a compound word that means glory hungry. Glory hungry. Glory starved. Glory empty. Glory hunger causes me to ask, what about me? Glory hunger makes me addicted to my own significance. Glory hunger makes me discontent when others pay attention to someone else I view as my rival because I want to be recognized. I want to be noticed. I want to be seen. And Adam and Eve grasp for glory, and this world's been broken since. And then there's the word selfish ambition. See, glory-hungry people behave out of selfish ambition. That's the word rivalry. We, we, we become fighters. We live to fight. We want to fight for glory. We want to struggle for glory. We, we, we view people in situations, you're my adversary. We're competitors, grasping for glory. And, you know, I'm not going to be too hard on Adam and Eve because this shows up in my life in, in such immature ways. Even as we were driving home from Tulsa to Champaign, you know, you don't get too far on the interstate when you start seeing these orange signs 
all over everywhere, road construction. And so, you know, the signs that say, you know, lanes merge, right? So you've got lanes here, and left lane merges into the right lane one mile out. You get a heads up. One mile out. One mile out. So you can start planning ahead. That's what the righteous people do. What the, that's what the sheep do because they're, they're righteous. And so they just immediately go into the right-hand lane and decisions already made. They can just continue to have a pleasant conversation and they're just moving right along, okay? Yeah. But not the goats. <laughs> oh. They see that left lane all the way open, so they just step on the accelerator and zip all the way up. There. Then at the very end, when that left lane's about ready to end, what do they do? Huh? They want to squeak right in there, wiggle right on in there to that. Uh, I'm glad to know that we don't have any goats in this service. I've already preached to the goats. And we've taken their offering too, so. Anyway. Woe to the goat. And you know what they do, right? Yeah, they, 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 you know, they get right on there just for the lane's about ready to turn in. They, they kind of flag at you. They look at you. You know, they go on in. You know, yeah. yeah, except when this sheep's in the right lane. <laughs> I'm not even going to look. I'm not, I'm not acknowledging your presence. Huh? You know what that is? That's... Rivalry. That's selfish ambition. <laughs> and it just shows up. Oh, I need Jesus. And because of his great love for us, Jesus did not grasp at his position or his deity or his status so much that he was unwilling to rescue us unwilling to yield, unwilling to serve. Verse 6 says, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. See, he who was equal with God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. White knuckle grips, mine. That's not his heart. And then what we need to understand and respect is that Jesus had rights. You know that, don't you? He had rights. He had every right to be worshipped. He had every right to be served. He had every right to be honored. He had every right to be immune from suffering. He had every right to be respected in a manner that reflected the dignity of his glory. He had those rights, and he willingly waived those rights. Verse 7 says, he emptied Himself. We, we grab for glory because we're glory starved, but he who was full of glory emptied himself. He gave himself. He who was on the outside entered our selfish, conceited, glory starved world. Furthermore, Jesus emptied himself not by what he took away, but by what he took on. 
not by what he subtracted, by, but by what he added. So it's sort of a paradox, but that's Christianity, isn't it? If you want to you know, save your life, you've got to lose your life. If you want to be the greatest, you've got to serve. If you want to be first, you've got to be last. He, he emptied himself not by what he subtracted, but by what he added. Well, what did he add? And the rest of the hymn tells us. He added human flesh. He put on the, the layer of human flesh. And then he put on the layer of the status of a slave. And then he put on death by crucifixion. Let's consider each of these three. The royal son emptied himself, verse 7, by taking the form of a servant. He assumes a new relationship with his father. He became a doulos, a slave, a non-person, a person with no rights, a, a person that the law did not recognize or protect. He put himself there. He became what he had never been before without ceasing to be what he had always been. And being found in human form, being born in the likeness of men, verses 7 and 8. What does that mean? It, it doesn't mean that he simply just appeared to be human. It, it means that there was nothing visually striking about Jesus that would lead anyone to believe that he was anything other than human. You know, he, he sweat. He had body odor. He had pimples. He had bad breath. I mean, he, his muscles became sore. He needed sleep and rest. And he got hangnails and splinters. See, he was human. He put on human flesh. He put on the status of a slave. And then he put on death by crucifixion. A slave's death. Verse 8 says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The sickness of the cross concealed the splendor of Christ so deeply it was almost impossible for this world to see who he really was. Battered and abandoned, he looked like anybody but God. He barely looked human. He looked like an atheist and a blasphemer. And then he died. The very last word in both the English and the Greek translations, the very last word in verse 8 is the word cross. Cross. Christ turned his back voluntarily, deliberately, decisively, on personal glory and gain, and whatever he found in himself to spend, he spent, he held nothing back. He gave it all for us, for us, because that was what was necessary for us to be 
in heaven with him. And thus he, he gave us the one true gift. He embodied the one true gift. And by, by his sacrifice, he gave us the one true gift. And it is what will improve our relationships with God and with one another. It is the gift of humility. Humility. Humility is the noble choice of putting my strength to the service of others. Humility is the noble choice of putting my strength for the service of others, for the good of others. It's when we give our assets, our power, our muscle, our resources for the good of others. In humility, Jesus sacrificed himself for us. In humility, he put his power to the service of others. In humility, he traded the homage of angels for the hatred of enemies. In humility, he entrusted himself to his heavenly Father. In humility, Jesus satisfied our sin debt against God by paying for it himself in order to create a kingdom people. Think of it as a department store. Jesus took charge of the humility department and his father took charge of the glory department. And whereas Christ acted in total humility leading to death on a cross, God acted in total power leading to his supreme exaltation, the exaltation of, of his beloved son before the whole universe, Paul says. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every name, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God be praised. Love begins when someone else's needs are counted as more important than my own. The God that we worship is humble, selfless, loving. He is a slave king who rescued us from the hell of glory hunger so that we might be adopted into his glorious kingdom of everlasting life. And he did this with his life. That's the picture. The king who became a slave. The one who had rights. Surrendered his rights. So that we might have the rights of adoption. That's the picture. Now here's the point of the picture. God wants us to imitate the humility of his son. It's not just for information's sake. It's for transformation's sake. The king became a servant so that his servants would live like their king. Verse 5, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. So these verses were first written to a very status-conscious culture. Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony. It was like a little piece of Italy in Greece. And, and it was a city for retired Roman soldiers and officers. About 40% of the city were veterans of the Roman military. And 
You couldn't serve in the military without being a citizen. So the idea of a citizen waiving rights to become a slave, that just, that just wasn't in the cards for them. They obsessed over being somebodies instead of nobodies, and proud to publicly display their rank and social class. But here, the gospel announced one who was truly a somebody, who put himself in a position which virtually guaranteed that he would be misunderstood, misinterpreted, mistreated, and underestimated. In this class-conscious culture, Paul uses the S word, slave, and the C word, cross. And Paul's challenging this church. Don't look to your culture. Look to your king. Stop grasping. Start serving. You think that might be a good word for us? We who are not equal with God, we count equality with God, something to be grasped. But Jesus though equal with God, descended to the bottom of the ladder. Jesus emptied himself. Philippi was full of itself. Jesus played the servant. Philippi played the king. Could that be true of us? Could any of us be accused of grasping? Anytime we've ever said, I've got my rights, that's grasping. Anytime we've ever said, well, I'm not going to apologize to them. They're going to have to come to me if they want this settled. That's grasping. Anytime we say, well, I know what God's word says, but I'm going to do what makes me happy. That's grasping. Jesus found his name by losing it. You know, we try to gain a name by grasping, and then when we get to the top of the ladder, we don't even know who we are. Frederica Matthews Green wrote a little book called The Jesus Prayer. My favorite quote in that little book. Pride builds a cardboard fortress that humility must every day tear down. Pride builds a cardboard fortress. You know, we think we're baking a huge, big metal, steel concrete fortress it's just made of cardboard pride builds a cardboard fortress that humility must every day tear down you know pride's your greatest enemy humility is your best friend pride is of Satan humility is of the spirit in pride we compare ourselves to one another but in humility we must compare ourselves to Christ Pride covets the success of others. Humility celebrates the success of others. Pride's about I, me, my. Humility is about we, us, ours. Pride's about my glory. Humility is about the glory of Christ. Pride says, you will be like God. Humility says, Jesus is God. Pride can be achieved in this life, you know. Humility is what we must continually pursue in this life. You, you never arrive at humility. You know, you're on the path 
of humility. You pursue humility, but you don't get there. I mean, nobody can say, well, I'm proud to report I'm humble. <laughs> All we can say is that by God's grace, by God's grace, I am a proud person pursuing humility. Proverbs 8, 1 says, I hate pride. I hate pride. Isaiah 66, 2 says, I admire humility. But this is the one to whom I will look, Isaiah 66, 2. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Do you want the gaze of God Humility gains the gaze of God. C.S. Lewis once said, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility because he will not be thinking about himself at all. Uh, my recommended leadership book for us this year is a book written by an author whose name is Scott Rodin, R-O-D-I-N, The Steward Leader. The Steward Leader. Scott Rodin wrote, I have come to believe that true Christian leadership is an ongoing, disciplined practice of becoming a person of no reputation. The, the, the way of the Christian leader is not the way of upward mobility, but the way of downward mobility ending on the cross. And to fail at this in leadership, when we fail at this, we teach those. We lead what Scott calls learned helplessness. Learned helplessness. Learned helplessness, it, you know, it, it's when the leaders teach the followers to depend on them for everything. And then that dependence feeds the need to be needed. You know, to be the idea person, to be the visionary, and, you know, the one who leaves a legacy. And I, and I have heard that before in, in a in a disorderly way, and in a, in a dysfunctional way. It's leaving a legacy. And <laughs> let me tell you about leaving a legacy, okay? Who was the minister at Winds Road Christian Church in the year 1980? Well, you just proved my point then, didn't you? See? It is not about us. It's not about us. It's about putting our strength and our resources and our love for the good of others. So here's the real test of leadership. Does my leadership 
enable growth in the life of those who are led? Do those served by my leadership flourish as persons? Does my leadership serve others so that they become healthier and wiser and freer and more autonomous, more likely themselves to be servants, you see? Don't you see, God wants us to mediate his glory by acting in humility. He wants to take charge of the glory department. And he's left us in charge of the humility department. Now, will we do that? Because right now, we are forming a picture for future generations to see. And ultimately, we want it to be the picture of our king. So who needs your strength today? Who needs what only you can give? Who needs our love? Will we use our power like Jesus? Will we use it for the sake of others? Will we take on the nature of a servant? You say, if I did that bolting house, they would put me on a cross. I know that's what I'm trying to say. That's what I'm trying to say. And so we go to that cross fully confident that the God who created everything is also in charge of the glory department. And he's going to handle that. He's left for us the humility department. Now, are we going to steward that with our leadership? Jesus himself said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you want to draw near to God, then clean floors with him because that's where he is. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you sent your son, the king, to become the slave king, only then to glorify him as the supreme sovereign over heaven and earth. And our worship now is but a taste of the glory to come. Thank you that Christmas began in heaven and that Christmas concludes in the new heavens and the new earth. Oh, concludes only to begin, only to exist, only to never end. Together with one family. Thank you, Jesus. And the church said, amen.